there were some games we were playing in front of 90,000, tackle someone and the whole crowd sort of goes up together and literally the hairs on the, on the back of your neck stand up. He was bankrupt three times before he sold his business 10 or 15 years ago for like 60 or 70 million bucks. I was trying to push through all my issues. I was abusing drugs, I was abusing alcohol. If going through what I went through meant that I've got my wife and my kids, I'd, I'd go through it every single day of the week. Every once in a while, a revolutionary podcast comes along that changes everything. Welcome to Brick by Brick. When I started like 4 billion, by the time I left, it was 9 billion. What did you learn from doing burnouts at the training ground? <laughs> a melon. I wouldn't say scorpion ridden. Overdrawing my account while trying to buy like a single roll of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> so I became a professional poker player. There were some guys who were playing in front of 90,000. I actually made $200,000 in my first year. Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon both personally invested in the funds. He said no, which probably cost us each $40 million. It was, it was pretty savage. Oh, what is that going to do to your resume? Fuck it. Just fucking do it. Right now? Right now. <laughs> Rob, welcome to Brick by Brick. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks for having me, mate. We finally got here. Right? All the yeah. rescheduling and <laughs> no shows. It's good to be here, mate. It's good to see you again. I don't think we've chatted for uh, probably since this time last year, I reckon. Yeah. So we worked together um, making a website for the company you're working for at the time. I went to speak to you since then because even speaking to you then, I got the sort of sense of you're not, you're definitely not just like a normal run of the mill guy. You've played 167 games at the highest level of Australian rules football, which is the biggest sport in Australia. You played for my favorite club, Carlton. <laughs> um, but yes, how did you, how did that come about? What was your relationship with football? Oh, look, football was just, something that was in my blood you know right from when I was a young kid my pop played at the highest level you know as you said Carlton was you know your team and that was one of the first things that you, you told me when we first jumped on the phone that your pop yeah. played at Carlton I think around the same time it might have been just either side of my pop so you know he played in two premierships um you know was chairman of selectors for a number of years so he was heavily involved in football and then my uncle played for Carlton and Richmond um, all of my uncles played, my dad played, my dad was apparently a very good footballer, but unfortunately for him, injuries cutting down, uh, you know, when he was quite young. So he never, you know, never made it to that, uh, to the top flight, but so I think, you know, started playing, prof oh, you know, competitively when I was six, maybe in the under tens. And, um, did you, you always know, know that you were going to go prone? Like, were you on a path? Did you do anything differently or were you just having fun and it happened? No, look, I, I, there was always ability. Um, my parents saw that. The people around me saw that. I mean, you know, when I first started playing footy, it was a thing called uh, Vic Kick back in the day. It's called Oz Kick now, which is designed to get, you know, young tackers while they're small to get them into, into football to help them develop their skills and, you know, teach them about the game and, you know, away from the real competitive side of things. And, you know, I think it was, I was in grade prep and, you know, I got bumped up to grade two because one, I was too rough with the prep <laughs> kids and my skill level was just a little bit above, you know, everyone else. So I think that gave sort of, you know, my mom and my dad an indication of where I was from a football perspective. And um, I just absolutely loved it as well, you know, and, um, you know, and then as I got older and, you know, things start to get a bit more serious, footy tends to get a bit more serious around, you know, the 14 age mark, 14 or 15 age mark. That's when you have like, yeah. you know, um, the school, the Australian schoolboy competition. So, you know, we, 
represent his state. Um, and then things like the Calder Cannons, which is like sort of the best young kids from around the area play for that team. And that, that there's, there's different teams or, you know, spread out through, um, through the state. And, um, so you have that, you know, under 15s, under 16s, under 18s, again, there's Australian championships where you represent your state at under 16s and under 18 level. And so when I was coming through, you know, I made the Victorian team in under 15s, made the Victorian team in under 16s. I was all Australian. I was captain of the Australian team when we went to Ireland to represent, um, uh, Australia in the uh, International Rules Series, which is a game. It was like a hybrid of our game and Gaelic football. We'd play the Irish okay, yeah. um, every year. We'd alternate it. You know, I, the year I went, we went to Ireland, which was, which was magnificent. And then, you know, um, as a 17-year-old in the under-18s, I made the, the Vic Metro, uh, Victorian squad again and, and then was all Australian again. So I was a, was a pretty handy um, junior footballer. And from then on... Um, yeah, I got drafted in, into the AFL system, so it works. You know, it's a little bit different to, to probably what you're used to in, in soccer. You know, they have the, the academies for kids as, as young as, you know, seven or eight, I'm told, you know, coming through. And, uh, you know, the money's on a bit more of a <laughs> a bit more of a higher level than, than our sport. But, um, and yeah, so I was, I was pick five. Uh, we're going to a, a thing called the, the National Draft, so players who – you know, want to get into the AFL system. They nominate themselves for a draft and then teams will get picks in that draft based on where they finished, um, you know, the previous season. So, you know, the further down the ladder that you finish, the higher your draft picks. Um, so I got picked um, to Melbourne at pick number five. Um, so which is, you know, a top five draft pick. And um, that was as, as a 17-year-old um, as well. So I guess that was my, you know, sort of journey as a junior, um, you know, into, um, you know, to the, the, the world of professional um, AFL. And, you know, to answer your question, yes, it was fun to start with, but, you know, it's just something uh, that I loved doing and, and something that I, you know, was, you know, pretty good at. And I was pretty confident, you know, that I was good at it as well. And it was always a dream to play footy, you know, as most young kids will say, when they start playing footy, they just want to play <laughs> AFL. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to, um, uh, you know, to be born with a, with a certain um, skill set. But there's nothing lucky about the players getting to, you know, um, the pros because, you know, talent's one thing, but hard work and dedication and sacrifice are just like, you know, they're the things that separate, you know, the people with talent and the people who go above and beyond that. Do you think there's people who were... Uh let's just take you as an example, as talented as you, but not capable of making the same sacrifices that you made like in those times. And they what, didn't make more, it. Like more talented. So the guy that I drafted the same, in the same draft, Melbourne finished, I think they only had four wins the prior season. So they qualified for an extra pick in the, in the, in the draft, in the, in the top five, um, because they were that bad. It was a priority yeah. pick. So the guy that went at pick three, who got um, drafted to Melbourne as well, was Colin Silver. Um, Colin and I became really good mates, but he was the perfect example of this guy had like so much ability, like the type of athlete he was, the type of footballer he was. Like um, he was just an absolute jet. But unfortunately for Colin, um, yeah, those uh, Colin played well when he when he applied himself. Um, you know, so if he, and he, and he didn't do it consistently. So, um, you know, we had some pretty hard conversations quite a few times throughout time at Melbourne, like, mate, you, you know, you should be dominating every week with the skill set 
um, you've got. But, you know, unfortunately, some some people are just wired um, mm. like that. If you look at probably the best players in the competition, it's no fluke or it's no coincidence that, you know, majority of them are probably one of the teams, you know, hardest workers and the, you know, yeah. the players that, that just um, do the little one percenters uh, that, you know, on their own don't add up to much, but cumulatively um, they make such a huge difference and what separates, you know, the really good players from the absolute elite players. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, Muhammad Ali is saying where he's like, the hardest part of my training wasn't the boxing, it was skipping the nightclubs and the women and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And along oh, those lines, yeah, what yeah, did you I sacrifice? Mean, look, it's a tough one, right? Like, I mean, growing up as a kid, you know, you're not going to parties with your mates and you're not, you know, uh, drinking alcohol and um, you're missing out on all of those, you know, social events, which, you know, as every kid knows when they're growing up, those are the, the highlights of their, of their teenage years. You know, that's what they absolutely love and look forward to going to. And, um, you know, chasing a bit of skirt and, um, you know, the chance to, you know, have a have a, have a few drinks with your mates, you know, to have, you know, a, a 16th or a 17th or something like that, even though, you know, drinking was illegal. But, you know, you know, having gone through my career now, like, um, you know, I'd, if I had my time over again, yeah, of course I'd, I'd, I'd give up all of those things, you know, to, for the, for the, uh, to give myself the best chance of, of playing AFL. Um, and, you know, lucky for me, I had some really, you know, supportive mates who never peer pressured me, you know, who understood that there was a bigger goal in mind, you know, for me. So, you know, there was never any, oh, you know, sh- oh, come on, mate, you know, come to the party. Oh, don't worry about footy tomorrow, you know, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Anything. It was nothing like that at all. So very lucky in that regard. And then, um, yeah, so I can totally agree with what, um, you know, that quote from Muhammad Ali. I want to just, for my own benefit as like a sports fan, I want to share this video with you and get your thoughts and get you to talk through it a bit. I'm, I'm sure you might have watched it a few times, but maybe not. Um, <laughs> if it's so the one is... I'm thinking of, I've seen it plenty of times. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I bet all the views on YouTube, is that you? <laughs> yeah, 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 probably. This one? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> My wife actually had it on the TV last night. But he can't kick the journey. Hammers it. Put over the back. Cash ball. It's cleared the back. It's a goal. Boy, oh, boy. It's going to happen to Richmond again. 52 seconds left. He got it crossing. How many times have you watched it? <laughs> I watched it a few. And I, I remember um, when I went to uni after playing... Uh, after finishing up my career and there are a couple of guys who are studying finance and um, there are a couple of guys who who knew who I was who were doing the same same degree and every time I'd walk into the the lecture theatre on a Monday morning to go through our economics um, uh, lecture they would always put that every time I walked in they were just sitting there (laughs) waiting for me to walk in and they play that and they play it really really (laughs) loud too so (laughs) Um, and mate, I, I still get, I still get Carlton supporters, you know, you know, coming up to me, there's been times where I've actually gone to like a, you know, a market and they've had a stall there and I've bought some stuff off them. They've gone to pay like, no, mate, we, we can't accept, uh, we can't accept, money, oh, you know, yeah. we, we, we still love that night. We kicked that goal <laughs> against Richmond and, you know, and knocked him out of the final. So, yeah. um, yeah, so I've watched it a few times myself. People have sent it to me all the time. People have played it in front of me, you know, constantly talking about it with, with Carlton supporters when I run into them. Yeah. So 
it must feel that must be the best feeling. Is that the best feeling in the world? Like before, like your kids being born. Other than that, is it is or is it not? Maybe maybe you just get carried away and it's surreal, so you almost don't get to experience it. And there's you have yeah. to sacrifice everything and all your training. How does it feel? Because from for, for a spectator sitting on the couch at home, it's the it's unreal, and you can only ever imagine that it's the best thing ever. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about the word, you know, ineffable uh, before, and you know, as a as an elite athlete, when you you know you run out and on the ground, and you know, there were some games where I'm playing in front of you know ninety thousand you know people and tackle someone, and the whole crowd sort of goes up together, and you know, literally the hairs on the on the back of your neck, you know, stand up, and you know, you kick a goal like that, or um, you know, there was probably the highlight of my career was. I think it was in my third season at Melbourne and um, we uh, came from behind in a final, um, you know, to win. And I played really well that night. Like I was the best player on the ground. It was probably the best game I've ever played, um, you know, in my career. And I just remember that feeling of just being on absolute cloud nine, you know, you're just walking around for the next couple of days. It's like, you know, wow, is it actually real? And, you know, the, you talk about when you, you dream of being a footballer as a kid and you never quite dream anything like that. Your dreams are, I just want to play one game. I just want to play one game. Um, and then, you know, something like that happens and, you know, it's it's just the most amazing feel. It's, you know, it's it's greater than than any drug, um, you know, certainly not as as amazing as, as you said, the birth of my, my two daughters and the day that I married my wife. Like nothing will ever come close, you know, to those three things. We've got two daughters and hopefully only one wife for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, out, outside of outside of family and friends, which are the most important things, in, you know, in in your life, that, yeah, that was just something I'll actually never forget. I still have dreams about it at times. You know, I still, I still absolutely miss footy. I miss that feeling of running out, you know, on the ground and going to training every day with 40 of your, you know, who are your closest mates um, at the time and having this bond that's really hard to to sort of describe to people it's not like you know just going to a you know your workplace um and having that bond with your, your people that you work with like these are guys that you absolutely bust your nut with you they want to say you know some people say oh know you go to war with when you go on the field you don't go to war on the field but when you go out to to battle you know i guess and you know that bond you're represented by the same jumper and you know you would absolutely you know sacrifice um yourself and your health and safety for your teammates, you know, and actually, you know, there were times where a lot of us would get hurt, you know, um, you know, coming in to help a, a teammate or, you know, wanting to support a teammate or wanting to protect a teammate. So it's, you know, it's that bond that I miss and, you know, that, that feeling, as I said, like it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's really hard to describe. Did it leave a place in your life after football or even during where, where was yeah. some because that's you're coming down from a higher after that right so yeah yeah I look I prepared as well as I could for, for life after football I studied when I played um I did internships when I played some uh one with sort of a small financial services company one with a big one called PwC which a lot of people you know would have heard of so you know I had one eye on, on life after football understanding that you can't play footy forever and at some point you're gonna have to you know slip into the real world and you know, and get a job and, and carry on like a normal person. But, um, yeah, I really, even though I prepared really well, I struggled, you know, big time. I struggled with, you know, this 
loss of identity, issues around, you know, self-worth. You know, what I just spoke about then, you know, that high of, you know, running out in front of fans and, you know, getting cheered and, and all that and trying to chase, you know, that high with drugs and alcohol and realising that it didn't even come close but it still doesn't stop you from chasing, um, you know. So the, the, the struggle was really, you know, hard for me and it, it took me, you know, the time I finished up in the end of 2014 to, to the time I came, you know, good, it was probably, you know, a good six years, um, you know, and, you know, I attempted suicide. I was I was at a really low point in my life. I spent a number of um, uh, a couple of stints in psychiatric clinics. Um, you know, in and out of uh, weekly psychologist appointments, monthly psychiatrist appointments. You know, trying all different types of uh, antidepressants and antipsychotics and uh, mood stabilizers. So it's yeah, it's it's um, it's a real challenge for a lot of elite athletes when you know they leave their chosen sport is you know how do i fit in society you know who am i what am i you know am i worthy without you know with doing the the thing that i absolutely love doing the thing that i'm actually really really you know good at so it uh yeah certainly um you know i'm not the only one and it's not confined just to elite athletes you know um i've done you know talks for uh, you know, a bunch of police officers one day and they said the same thing. They were a police officer for 40 years, left the, left the force and like, well, you know, who I am? Who, who am I? You know, I'm, I'm not a police officer anymore, actually. You know, what am I supposed to do now? So it's, yeah, it was certainly challenging for me, but, you know, uh, something, you know, that I, I don't, you know, regret or I, I wouldn't do anything differently because every experience that I've had and everything I went through has led me to the point, you know, where I am today. And, you know, I'm the firm believer that everything in life happens for a reason, you know, and if um, if going through what I went through meant that I've got what I've got now in terms of, you know, my wife and my kids, I'd, I'd go through it every single day of the week because, you know, they they are worth um, all of that, you know, and some. That is an amazing story because tragically lots of people don't make it through the suicide attempts and yeah. it is a tragedy because I think that, when someone's in that state of mind, and perhaps you can talk a bit around this, if if you're their family or friends, um, it's hard to get through to them, like the actual person that they were maybe a few years earlier. So they're infected by a virus and there's struggles in my family at the moment with this. So what would you, how do you get through to that person? Or is it down to them or? Yeah, it, it look, I've you know caught this this question constantly pops up right. It's like oh we need to be doing more for players when they leave the game, or we need more resources. And I was like I had an amazing pool of resources at my fingertips, but if a person's not willing to actually use them and engage them and actually help themselves, then those resources aren't really going to do much, you know, at all. And the, the hardest thing, you know, I guess for for probably someone closest to someone who's struggling with any type of mental illness, whether it's, you know, depression or anxiety, or in my case ended up, I was undiagnosed bipolar for a number of years, you know. Um, the hardest thing is trying to actually get through to them because I think it doesn't matter what they say or it doesn't actually matter what they do. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the person and, and what they're going through. And, you know, um, you know, sometimes you can't be rational with people like that. But I think the most important thing that, that someone can do is just, you know, constantly tell them, you know, that doesn't matter what you're going through, mate. I'm always here for you. You're always loved. You've always supported. And, you know, even if it, if it, um, you know, it doesn't help them get their life, 
back on track. At least they know. At least they know that someone, you know, loves them, cares for them, supports them, will always be there for them. And I think, you know, um, you know, that might be the smallest difference in someone, you know, attempting to take their own life and someone actually, you know, coming to realise, well, hang on, you know, there is someone who loves me. I've heard that time and time and time again. So, you know, patience and, and trying to be as understanding, you know, as possible. Uh, but, yeah, just constantly reassuring them that, you know, no matter what, they're loved and they're supported and, you know, it, it doesn't matter what happens that, you know, that they'll always have that love and support. Yeah. I've had struggles with mental health in the past and it made me act out and potentially upset the people around me and basically just not be a good person. Yeah. Did you have that experience? And it was so yeah, did you have feelings of guilt and how did you overcome the feelings of guilt to like open yourself up to let people forgive you? Mm. Yeah, look, I, I mean, there's there's all types of things, you know, you, you, you don't think you're worthy of friends. So you either shut yourself off from your friends, you shut yourself off from your family, you don't answer your phone, you lock yourself, you know, in your house, you know, for a week or, you know, you act out if they say something nice or, you know, just that they're trying to care, you lash out at them and, you know, I'm not a victim, you know, stop trying to pander to me, all that type of stuff and you push people away. You don't want, you don't want to let people close because uh, you don't want people to know how badly, uh, you know, you're suffering. So, um, you know, learning um, and the, you know, there's also, a, a, for me, you know, my experience was, you know, I, I didn't want to be a burden to people. You know, I'm an ex extremely proud person, you know. I don't I don't need any help. You know, I can do everything, you know, on my own and asking someone for help or, you know, asking someone to support me or to do something for me, I really struggled with because I felt like, you know, I was being a burden, you know, to someone. So, um, you know, being able to, to get to a point where, you know, I valued myself and I, you know, found some love and some care and some empathy for myself and, and you know, found some some um, some value, you know, in myself. Then it became easier to be able to, to ask people for help or to try and lean on people and and understand, you know, that um, you know whatever had happened in the past that you know I was extremely sorry for. Um, but you know, I was uh, at some point you got to forgive yourself um, and move on because a lot of those people had forgiven me ages ago. They never held grudges and they never did anything um like that um so it was for me i i would some of the stuff that i used to, to say to myself and the way that i treat myself i would never ever say that to any other human being in the entire world or never ever treat you know, anyone whether that's a friend family member a stranger i would never do or say some of the things that i was doing you know to, to myself so i i had to learn how to sort of flick you know, shift that mentality to say, you know, treat yourself as you would treat, you know, other people. Um, yeah. You know, You're... so it was kind of, you know, you hear that saying, you know, you, you treat other people like you'd like to be treated. But, you know, it, for me, it was the, the other way around. And yeah. it, it takes it takes time, right? Like, learn, you know, ingrained behaviours, you've, you've been, you know, been like this way for a long period of time. But any learned behaviour can be unlearned. You know, so it takes time, you know, so that's why it's important to go the psychologist on a weekly basis and you know talk openly and honestly about what you're going through and what you're experiencing and you know just constantly stick at it because you know sometimes it feels like two steps forward six steps back you know three steps forward four steps back um but as long as you're sort of trending in the right direction you know if you're just moving forward then eventually um you know you, you come good after you know however long you, but you can't put a time frame on it
I think a lot of high-performing people have toxic traits that they use to motivate them and drive them. Like lacking in self-worth, you're then constantly seeking external validation by getting better at your sport or whatever. How do you maintain a feeling of self-love without taking away your like drive and like ambition and that like fire within you to to achieve something? Is it possible? Yeah. It's a it's a really difficult one, and that was probably one of my, you know my upbringing. My dad was an extremely extremely hard person, you know, very um, you know uh, never really got much you know love or never really got many sort of compliments. It was always you know if you played a really good game, it was like oh but you didn't do this well, you didn't do that well, you didn't do that well. It was always pointing out the negative. And from a football perspective, I'm glad he did that because it actually pushed it made me push and trying and never never rest on my laurels and to never be satisfied and I was always working hard on something you know you I was never that I never played the complete game in my eyes or I could never be the complete footballer because there was something I always had to be working on so from that perspective I I can't fault my dad and I'm glad my dad did that because it, it, I don't think I would have got to the position that I did you know in terms of being professional footballer but on the flip side what it did to me um you know from a mental health perspective and from a, a self-love and self-worth perspective, yeah, probably, you know, it didn't do me um, any favors. And that's, you know, that's not putting any blame, you know, on my dad at all. Dad was just what doing what he thought was right, probably how his, he was raised, you know, as well. So there's certainly no blame or anger or hatred towards anyone. It's just, you know, how it was. But I think, I think you can find a balance, you know, between... Um, you know, especially if you're, you know, as a, as a father say, you know, you, I think you can still find balance in saying, you know, giving them, giving them love, giving them worth, but also being, you know, sort of hard and realistic um, and honest, you know, at the same time, I just think you can do it with a bit more, with a bit more balance. So um, yeah, it's, it's, a, but it's a, it's a bloody difficult one, right? Because generally, um, or you know, from my experience anyway, I was you know very an all or nothing person, a very black or white person. So when I was doing something, it was you know hundred percent balls to the wall. Or if I wasn't doing it, you know I was just completely doing nothing. So you know that compounded everything um, as well. Yeah. So how did you find self worth? Yeah. Look, it took so like for so when I finished, um, you know, uh, football, I was really because I associated. Where I was on the corporate ladder, so I started out as a junior equities analyst. That was my first job. So I was pretty much at the bottom of the pecking order, you know, within my division, right? And I associated that with my self-worth. You know, when I was a footballer, I was doing, you know, I was at the very pinnacle of what you could do. You couldn't go any higher, you know, than that. So I felt worthy as a person. Um, so to try and make myself feel worthy, um, you know, I just, I was studying full time. I was working full time. I was trying to push through all my issues. Um, you know, I was abusing drugs, I was abusing alcohol. Um, and I did this for, God, uh, probably a good four or five years. Um, and then it just got to the point, um, and I was just like, I just need to just stop everything that I'm doing. I, I had a really bad weekend once and, you know, I, I went and saw my my psychiatrist and uh, I just said, no, I don't think I, I think it's something more than depression. No, I have these really, really, um, you know, violent mood swings where I can be like absolutely manic, you know, for, for days on end. And, 
Um, and then I can go just from being manic to being completely depressed and not wanting to get out of bed and not wanting to answer my phone and wanting to just to be completely left alone and, and to be in a, in a dark place. And, you know, so he came to the conclusion that he thought it was bipolar, you know, which is something that my doctor had been mentioning to me um, as well. So I got on different medication and I, I just quit my job. It was just like, no, nah, I'm, I'm not going to try and, you know, um, you know, juggle everything in my life. My health and well-being needs to be the priority. So I just quit. Um, and then my psychologist put me on to this, um, this podcast. And it was by a lady by the name of Kristen, uh, Kristen Neff, I think her name is. And she's like probably one of the world's gurus on, you know, self-compassion and self-love and, 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 and value for yourself. And so I went for a walk and, you know, I had the podcast on and, and you know, straight away into a, um, you know, the first five or 10 minutes, she explained why some people struggle with, you know, um, with those concepts and why they don't have any for themselves. And it's generally because, you know, there's a few things that might happen to them, you know, through their childhood or through their, you know, some type of life experiences. And and one that she mentioned was something that, that I identified with. So I mean, I remember walking through the park and straight away, I just, I just had this huge, uh, it was just like this massive emotional, you know, relief or purge. And I just started crying uncontrollably. And, you know, for the first time, you know, in a long time, I was like, mate, it's, it's nothing. It's not your fault. Stop blaming, you know, yourself. I was always so hard and I, you know, my self-hatred, I was just so hard and judgmental, you know, on myself. So, straight away having that that relief and just being able to say you know it's not your fault mate and then from then i can actually start you know to move on and actually start to develop um you know skills and start to do daily practices you know that could help me you know um move towards a position where i felt i felt like i was enough you know and i felt like i was enough um and i felt like i was worthy of love and worthy of respect and worthy of care and i was I was valuable as a person, you know, and that was regardless of what I did, you know, as a job, it was because of who I was, you know, as a person that I could, you know, if you speak to, you know, any of my friends and my wife, you know, constantly tells me because she knows the dark places that I've been to, you know, she constantly reminds me of, you know, what value I bring as a person and how much I am loved um, and admired you know, by my friends and family. And, you know, when I walk into a room, she's like, you light up the room. So, uh, you know, being able to hear that and actually believe it and remind myself of it, you know, because there are some days where I still feel, you know, where I'll be like, shit, this is a really, really hard day. I'm really struggling. So to be able to remind myself of those things certainly helps, you know, try and break you out of that funk as well. Do you think that, first of all, as well, your wife sounds like an amazing woman that's she's right. nice I'm definitely thing. batting way above my average <laughs> <laughs> that's sick um do you think bipolar come and i suppose this could be any mental health issue can it come and go in varying strengths at different periods in your life so when you've got less of a purpose or you're not performing high at something then it can come back stronger and then when everything's going well it sort of quells a bit is that Oh, it, I mean, it depends, I guess. It depends what stresses you've got going on in your life. It depends how you manage, you know. I think, you know, I one thing that I've learned over my journey is you, you need to take a holistic approach to health and well-being. And I think, you know, there's too much uh, emphasis placed on pharmacology and people just saying, you know, give me the antidepressant, you know, 
give me the antipsychotic, you know, and the, take the tablet and don't really make any changes to their lifestyle. That was certainly me. Early on, you know, I started taking my antidepressants and just think, oh, you know what, that'll be enough. And I was still drinking and, you know, I wasn't playing, you know, giving myself any love or anything like that. So I'm like, well, you know, you look back now, you think that, you know, that was never going to do anything. So holistic approach. So whether that means, um, you know, so I, exercise is a really important thing and eating well is a really important thing and getting your sleep is a really important thing. And spending time and activities that, you know, for me, fill up my love bucket, you know, so spending as much time, you know, as I can, you know, with my kids getting up with them early in the morning and spending a few hours with it before I go to work. And, you know, uh, if I can, you know, getting home from work at a, at a reasonable time, and even if I've got work to do, you know, spending the time that they're awake, you know, with them because they go to bed early. Uh, and those types of things fill up my, my love bucket you know, practicing, um, you know, daily gratitude, um, you know, and, you know, every now and again doing a, a psychedelic session, which is really good, you know, for my, um, you know, sort of mental health as well and spending time with family and friends. And there's even times where I know in myself, you know, when you and anyone who's experienced depression will know that you, when you're feeling, you know, depressed or whatever it is, your, your natural inclination is to, to shut yourself off you know, from everyone. So on those days when I am feeling like that, I'll force myself to call a mate who I might not have spoken for a while or someone who I know if I speak to, I'm going to have an absolute laugh and we're going to chat for 10 or 15 minutes and talk about all the good things that are going on in our life. And I get off that phone call like, I'm so glad that I did that because I'm in such a different mindset, you know, now. And then I might call someone else or, you know, but it totally shifts, you know, um, everything for me. So and that, and everyone's got their triggers, you know, everyone's got things that can actually, you know, help sort of break that, break that cycle. But you have to lean into that, uh, you know, discomfort and you have to, you know, remind yourself to, to not fall into the trap of doing what, you know, feels, uh, you know, the thing to do at the time. And when you're depressed, you just want to shut yourself off, you know, from everyone. So, um, yeah, so I haven't yeah. had, had, had any really bad, episodes or anything like that for a while and i think it's just because you know of um you know my approach and and you know how i just take that holistic view on on my health and well-being yeah it's funny like you say you say that like before this it was just we just had a bank holiday weekend and i've just had to i've had a few things wednesday found me yesterday the trains were fucked up so i was traveling for ages so i was knackered this morning yeah and I was kind of like, oh, I don't feel like in a great way to ask questions. And I was kind of like feeling like that. But I was like, I'm just yeah. going to push through because I know I love conversations when I get there. And like yeah. earlier, I just looked down at the clock and I saw we're like half an hour through. I haven't thought yeah. about anything. I was just, yeah. I was just yeah. being like fully listening. And it's yeah. interesting how your mindset can, and your mind, your frame of mind can change so much if you can push yourself through a, a little barrier. But that must Simple take thing. a lot of grit and determination to be able to do that when you're depressed so is that something you've built over time or you're just like right i'm gonna do this now every time yeah i mean so it, it was you know it's sometimes it's a it's a really hard balance right some days you're like you know there's some days where you need to actually just you know no i'm not going to do anything today i really need a day of just looking after myself and not doing much and staying at home and if that means taking a day off work and so be it and there's other days where you're like you know what i need to break the cycle because I, I know from experience of, you know, staying home from work on one day, the tendency to want to do it the next day is 
stronger. And then the same, and there were like times where I spent, you know, a week away from work. But then there were other times where I felt in a very, very similar state of mind. Uh, but I almost felt like I was dragging myself out of bed on that Monday morning. And then when I got to work, I was like, you know what? I'm so glad that I have, have done that, you know? Um, but even on those days that if you, you know, you might stay home, you might be feeling really depressed, just just shifting your mindset a little bit and saying, you know what? I'm not going to do much today. So let's really lower my expectations and lower my goals. So if I have a shower, if I put a load of washing on, and if I go for a walk around the block, those are three things that I reckon that, <laughs> it, uh, that I can tick off that, you know, were three more things that I, you know, wasn't planning um, on doing. And, you know, for me, what I found was if I did, you know, have a shower, um, I was like, oh, you know, that felt good. You know, you'd get a you know, bit of a hit of dopamine. You're like, well, you know, what can I do next? Next thing you know, you put a load of washing on. And then I'd go for a walk and then I'd maybe vacuum the house. And then, you know, by the time I got on a little bit of a roll, a little bit of momentum, uh, you know, it, you've, you've had this, you know, productive day without actually going to work but, and you've showed yourself some self-care and self-love, you know, um, mm. at the same time. So, you know, as I said, it's going to be different, you know, for everyone. Everyone has to find their triggers. But the hardest thing, the hardest thing is, is actually reminding yourself of those things um, or trying to break the cycle um, of depression because as I touched on before, the tendency is just to want to, you know, you wake up, you know, that, that rolling fog just, you know, rolls over you and you just like, oh, you want to put the doona back over your head, you just turn your phone mm. off and you just want to be left alone. So being able to remind yourself in that moment, that's the most difficult thing. Mm. This is a bit of a wacky thought, but I watched Avatar again like a month ago. And when he first gets into the body of the alien, he like he doesn't have to use it, and yeah. it just sort of dawned on me: you're just a consciousness that's born into a body, and there's all these like physiological things, your physical body, the mental stuff. Like, it's, there's a million data points. So, like, yeah. to think that you'd ever be able to control that with no instruction manual is kind yeah. of like a ridiculous thought. So, like, I think people just need to know they just need to stay in the game and reflect on how different things happen with your body. And that could also change yeah. over time. But like, do you journal or anything like that? Like, how do you build this wisdom of understanding yourself when it's so easy to forget? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I've, I've kept notes. Like I've done, you know, a bunch of stuff over, you know, when I was listening, I re-listened to those podcasts and I took notes. And um, there was a course I did a couple of years ago in the middle of COVID called The Science of Wellbeing through Yale University. And I highly recommend that recommend that to, to anyone um you know it talks about the science of, of happiness you know and uh you know the tricks that our mind plays on us and the the false narratives that we believe um about you know what are the keys to happiness or you know sort of the um you know we're uh, you know the you know what material things contribute hey what are the keys is there, is there like a I've never read anything about happiness because I've always just thought like, I don't want to, I always just worry it's going to be some, some, some rubbish. So yeah. is there like a, someone who's never read about it? What so, social, the... social connection. Okay. Yeah. Social. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's probably, you know, well, but and again, everyone's going to be different, but you know, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a study that, um, 
Sean Accordion at Harvard University, you know, it's probably one of the most famous and most prestigious universities in the world, right? And everyone that goes there is clearly at the baseline level, very, very intelligent. But he did, he did a, a study based on, you know, when things got really difficult, um, you know, for half uh, students and he looked at the results of the, the people who shut themselves off from everyone and just bunkered down and when things got really stressful with their study and all that, they just, you know, isolated themselves and tried to just do everything on themselves. Whereas the people who tapped into their social network um, and reached out to their friends and, you know, when it studied in groups or spoke to someone about it, it was amazing how much better they did, you know, from uh, from a Mark's perspective than the people who shut themselves off. So, um, yeah. you know, that's just, that's just one small... Uh, you know, little snippet, but you know, from based on you know what I've read and and, and the studies and that um, um, that, that I've done, yeah, certainly social connection. You know, the ability to you know to to tap into um, your family, your friends, your support network. You know, particularly when things get things get hard. Uh, you know, and I know that from from my own experience as well. You know, mm-hmm. what I just touched on before. You know, calling a mate. You know, not feeling that great just has the most amazing, uh, amazing effect on my well-being mm. and my state of mind. Yeah, that's really cool. I also think that a big thing would be your purpose. Um, like the worst point for me was when I was at uni, and none of the exams counted for the first two years. And I've always been—I'm not I'm not that sporty. Wasn't especially popular when I was like a primary school and growing up. Um, my thing was always like academic stuff. So I got to uni and like partying a lot. And I just didn't have, hadn't done it, hadn't had a good exam result for three years by second year because I took a gap year. And I just was, even social connection, like nothing, I didn't know this at the time, but nothing was clicking for me. So I just didn't have that. And I found that since leaving, starting my own business and starting to like have a thing that I'm passionate about doing, that really like was sort of, light bulb moment for me yeah um, but i mean finding passion you know finding i guess purpose and you know i think um you know i think there's i really feel like the way that the expectations are on kids when they leave high school it's like you know you're expected to go to uni you're expected to know exactly what you want to do and you should you know should be working towards that you know for when you're 18 or 19 and, you know, mate, you think back to when you were 18 or 19, right? Like in how many, you know, different, I guess, personalities that you've gone through or different type of lifestyles or all these experiences that have actually, actually mould you into the person that you become, you know, into your 30s. Like that's when I, for I feel anyway, that's when you really start to know, you know, who you are and what you're passionate about and, uh, you know, what you want to get out of life. You know, there are exceptions, you know, to that as well and not everyone's the same um but you know uh going through different life experiences and 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 trial and error and um you know as you said eventually hopefully anyway everyone because i I truly believe that everyone does have something uh does have a purpose you know in their life and that everyone's got uh at least one talent um in their life and you know that's uh you know when I, you know, spoke about all my struggles when I left the game, it was, you know, a big part of that. Well, what's my purpose, you mm. know, now and, you know, getting into psychedelics, which is, you know, how we met, you know, that was, that was for me, that was like the real, you know, um, light bulb moment. It was like, yeah, 
this is it. Because as soon as I started sort of, you know, studying that and getting into that, um, it just, you know, it was, as I said, there was that light bulb moment. And, uh, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got to that point, you know, I wouldn't have started, you know, researching, you know, psychedelics if it wasn't for my own mental health, you know, journey. Yeah. So sometimes the, you know, the, the really shit stuff that happens to us um, in our life is, is for a purpose and you come out on the other side of it and you're like, well, wow, now I've gone through all of that. Now I've found my new purpose, you know, in Completely life. So agree. it's quite it's it's quite amazing just how, how life works, you know, in general, right? So it's um yeah, it's uh you know, sometimes think- it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense, but you know, um you know, finding you something that you're passionate about is just, you know, is 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 uh you know, a huge has a huge impact on your well being as well. Yeah, that's that's so true. And I think you touched on it earlier when you said that, you know, your friends knew that you had a higher vision with, with footy, like you knew where you were going. And then like in that journey to of sacrifice to a greater thing that you believed in, like scoring winning goals in finals, just being out there with all the boys week in, week out training, like you you had that sort of moment where it all paid off and that was worth more than any of those like parties would have been worth but most people sports is so open and you can see the you can see you can see the moment there's highlight reels of winning goals all the time but in let's take your example in psychedelic industry what what is the version of a winning goal and how do you build that picture of yourself because you're not playing week in week out most people aren't they're doing a, a job and they turn up in the week but there's no, there's never a crowd watching them. There's no milestones. So like, how, how would you think about that? Because now I suppose you're in the next start of your next part of your life story where you don't have the, the, the framework of sport to have your journey in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. And I mean, you know, I think, you know, probably the big thing that that drives me and, and wanting to work in this is the fact that, you know, it's, Although it's still very, you know, sort of early days, there are there there is a lot of research out there that it's proving to be so much more effective in treating mental health conditions than any pharmacology um, that we've seen, you know, up until up until this point. And having that lived experience and knowing what what I went through and speaking to different people when I was staying in um, psychiatric clinics and speaking to them about their journey and you know and, and you know, how bad, you know, their life um, experiences have been, you know, the, the amount of drugs and, and different, um, you know, types of drugs that they've been on, you know, over their, uh, their whole life and they still weren't getting, you know, any better. Wanting to be part of that movement that basically brings a whole new uh, ball game, you know, to the psychopharmacology um, industry and, um you know, for, for some of the studies that have been done today, we're talking about sort of, you know, potentially cure-based treatments, you know, certainly in the, the MDMA for PTSD clinical trials, like 67% of participants no longer met PTSD um, yeah. requirements, you know, a couple of months after finishing their treatment, which is just like absolutely, you know, it's incredible. remarkable. And I think, you know, touching on what I was talking about before in terms of, you know, a holistic approach, I think that's what, you know, psychedelics, you know, teach people right that it's just you know it's not just about taking a tablet and expecting you just to completely you know fix your life so 
uh, to sort of answer your question, it, it, it's the, the framework for me is actually just being a part of something, one, that I'm extremely passionate about and two, that, you know, I feel like is going to make a massive change and huge difference, you know, to the world. Yeah. And if I can be just the tiniest little microcosm in that, in the, you know, in that bigger cop, then, you know, I'd be very happy with that. So are you still involved or are you planning to get back in the game? Because you were at Gnosis and there you 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 guys were like developing VR scenarios for psychedelic therapy. And yeah. now you've taken a job as BD, a business development. Yeah, I'm a BDM. So unfortunately, yeah, the, um, but the last year and, uh, you know, Prash, the co-founder, um, he was a psychiatrist first interest in psychedelics and somewhere along the way he read the, he read the Bitcoin white paper and... Um, started buying Bitcoin and then realized that, you know, how much of a complex complex process that was here in Australia. So he set up a crypto brokerage business and that he did, he did really well out of that. So he could take a step back from that and folk could go back to his original passion, which was psychedelics and anosis therapeutics, which is using virtual reality to augment psychedelic therapy and improve treatment outcomes. Um, and then it got to last year and, you know, uh, the global economy started to really you know, tighten funding for startups became really difficult. Uh, there was a lot, a lot of noise going on in the crypto world, which sort of dried up funds from from that aspect of, of his business. So he um, he was bootstrapping it. And unfortunately for me, um, you know, my role got wound up and, you know, my second child was only three weeks old. So I had a 19-month-old at home and I had a three-week-old at home. And, you know, I, ideally I wanted to keep chasing that psychedelic, you know, passion um, but there was just too much uncertainty, you know, in that space. And uh, anyone who, you know, who's had young kids before knows that they, they need some security, you know, in their life, at least, you know, while they're young and, you know, my wife's on, on maternity leave. So uh, I took a, a job as a commercial BDM with a company called The Grand, really big worldwide organisation. Uh, they do sort of electrical infrastructure and digital solutions. So I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I'm slowly learning um, as I go along. Uh, but it's been, look, it's, I'm actually enjoying it. It's a, it's a lot of um, a lot of relationship management, a lot of you know networking, a lot of building relationships. Um, yeah, you know, which is something that I'm, that I'm really um, quite comfortable and good at. But in saying that, I still do have um, you know a connection to the psychedelic world. And um, there was a guy that I met. A few years ago when I was just, you know, I was researching as much as I could about psychedelics. There was a guy I found here in Melbourne named Mark Hesterman. He had a business called Natural MedTech. Um, and uh, he actually knew who I was. He used to come and watch me play footy with his girlfriend like oh, eight really? years ago. So I was, I was like, wow, this guy knows who I am. Like, surely not. He's a psychedelic researcher. <laughs> so anyway, we called up, had a coffee. I learned about his business and it sounded really fascinating. And I was like, mate, let's stay in touch. You know, I'd love to hear more about it as you progress. And we caught up again, you know, quite a few months later and I was like, Where, you know, where's your business at? And, um, you know, he sort of gave me a rundown and he, you know, he was telling me about this guy that he had in the States who was proposing to do this with his business. And and he's like, what do you think? And I said, mate, I'll be honest. I said, that sounds like a complete and utter sham. Like he's really trying to take you for a ride. I said, what are, you, what are your other options? And he's like, I don't have any. Like I'm running out of money. I need to do something. So I was, I was like, okay, leave it with me. Uh, and there was one guy who came to mind straight away. This is a guy that I met 16 years ago while I was traveling and we just became mates, you know, afterwards. And he went, he was in finance. He worked on wall street for a number of years, very passionate about his psychedelics as well. Went and done ayahuasca a bunch of times, um, uh, in South America. And I gave him a call. I said, mate, I, 
got this guy he's like really really smart knows his shit uh, very science orientated from a business perspective he's lacking a bit but i said that's where i think you can come in it's in psychedelics it's something that you're passionate about you know i think yeah i'll intro you and and um and they did and you know end up going back and forth and i acted as a bit of a conduit you know between those two but um now the business is up uh, it's um up and running um they've done two capital raises today i sort of got ground floor um equity you know in that business and you know once they scale up you know which they're getting ready to do uh, pretty much this year and the company grows there's definitely an opportunity for me to to um uh, oh, amazing to talk about you know permanent employment with with a company yeah. like that so and, and which you know, company is be, it it's called natural it's it kept the same name oh, it's, it's called natural it's called natural medtech so they're using biosynthesis oh, okay. to produce molecules at scale so biosynthesis okay. is you know yeah, it's a cleaner way of doing it um it's purized less environmental impact it's it's a lot oh, okay, more cost yeah. effective yeah so so they um you know they're going to do some i guess some drug development they're producing sort of 15 to 20 molecules at scale. So with um, the reason that they're really going to ramp up this year, they'll be in production this year because the, the legislation's recently changed here um, in Australia. So, oh, yeah, I heard. Um, so MDMA for PTSD will be um, will be legal and only, but only by authorised prescribers. So psych- psychiatrists who have been authorised by the, the TGA and the, the relevant governing bodies and, and psilocybin for um the treatment resistant depression so psilocybin is one of the, the the molecules that they'll be working so they'll be able to produce psilocybin at scale and be able to sell to you know people who are psychiatrists or you know companies who want to be treating um their patients who have got treatment resistant depression so it's a That's um, amazing yeah again you know just something that i'm extremely passionate about you know and having a you know a bit of a helping hand in introducing you know the the, the two co-founders of the business to each other and you know sort of playing my small role in in um you know helping that get off the ground is you know something that i'm extremely you know proud of and passionate about yeah that's really cool i think people skills are they're not underrated but no one ever celebrates them but like that is people skills and like that's amazing that you could help be that catalyst for making the business like grow have you ever thought about doing like VC or like angel investing or maybe in the future uh, when you've got a bit more? Yeah, look, I mean, potentially, mate. I mean, yeah, I mean, at, at the moment, the, the priority is just, you know, the kids, you know, they just take up, they're just so... Um, yeah, but... They just take up so much of your time, which like, don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining for one of the best things that, that have ever happened to me. And I, you know, if I, you know, if you're going into something like VC or angel investing or anything like that, which is what Prash and I were originally going to do. Like I was only going to be oh, doing okay. a little bit of with a Venosis part-time. So he was going to sell a chunk. Is him and two other guys who own Caleb and Brown, the crypto brokerage. He was going to sell 10% to a cornerstone when the market was absolutely flying. Uh, to get a capital injection, we were going to set up a, v- a psychedelic VC fund. Uh, we we're going to set up a research uh, research center up at um, Southern Cross University at Lismore. Uh, but you know the, the market shut itself. There were floods in Lismore, so the university was under stack of water. So that sort of got kiboshed. Uh, Everything that had possibly yeah. could have gone wrong, you know, did. Yeah. For the time being, it just wasn't meant to be. But you know, maybe one day we'll visit, re- re- revisit that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, I want to be in a position where I'm, I, you know able and um you know uh fully um you know 
uh, I guess, less restricted in terms of what time I can actually, you know, put into that because, you know, I'm a father first and foremost and I want to be spending as much as my time, um, you know, with my kids, you know, especially at yeah. this age as well. You don't, you don't get, you don't get that time back. And, you know, I've, um, you know, I've, I've had, you know, throughout COVID, you know, I was, uh, you know, in and out of, in and out of work and, uh, you know, it was just, which was a little bit stressful, um, at times, but the beauty of it was I got this, this so much time at home, you know, with my first daughter. And then, you know, when I got made redundant from my last role, I was at home for six weeks while I was just doing sort of the, what I needed to get done for anosis and look for a job. But, you know, having that time at home again, you know, at that early stage of my kid's life, um, you know, those two really stressful things, you know, for me turned out to be probably the best thing that ever happened to me because mm. I got to spend so much quality time, you know, with my kids at home. And as I was touching on before, it's amazing how life works sometimes, you know, like you, you think that, you know, this could, would this, you know, quite possibly could be the worst thing that happened to me at this time, but it turns out to be the best thing, you know? Yeah. So, That's so cool. I'm, I'm very happy that you're, you found like that sort of happiness there. And it's very noble as well to say like, yeah, I'm a father first and then we yeah. work on the next things. Um, what psychedelic experiences have you had and, what was notable about them? What was the outcome? What was? Yeah, I mean, was probably one of the most memorable ones that I'd had uh, was, um, you know, I was, I, I really, I was in a great space. I was, you know, I was doing really well, but then I'd, I'd had these like little sort of naggy feelings and thoughts that just started to become a bit more consistent about. It was like, you know, um, what. Um, you know what what happens if i you know if i regress what happens if i go back to that place you know that i was before and i was starting to get a bit anxious and a bit panicky um you know about that so i thought you know right, let's let's you know set some intentions you know let's let's do a um a psychedelic session and um let's aim to try and you know work work through this or see if the, that that um you know the psychedelic the molecule can show me you know anything um about this so uh i um uh, so you're going into it open-minded so you're not like yeah this so is the solution. i mean you're yeah like, look could i be. mean yeah i think you know the the reading that i did um basically said was that you should should have an intention when you do you know a psychedelic so and you know there's a real for me there's a real preparation so it's you know i eat as cleanly as possible i try and just be vegan you know for a couple of weeks um before um you know whatever if i'm using mushrooms or, or acid um uh because again based on what i've read that's you know you get the best experience um that way set an intention you know i start journaling in the in the week leading up to it you know what i'm hoping to get out of it what what i think could come up you know game plan is if you know if if um you know those those things that you don't want to get out of it you know if they don't come to fruition um, you know, there's a bit of breath work done beforehand, a bit of meditation. Um, and then that, that, you know, so that particular session, um, again, you know, you, we touched on that word ineffable, um, but I just got this overarching feeling from the universe that it was, as long as you look after me, I'll look after you. You know, that was, that was the feeling that I got. They never, never said that to me in like explicit words but that was just the feeling that i got you know from uh 
uh, you know, from that day. And, you know, as I said, ineffable, like it's words just don't accurately describe, you know, the feelings you get. You just feel so much love and peace and, um, you know, just the connection uh, with with nature, um, you know, it's just uh, it's just absolutely mind blowing and remarkable. And, um, it uh, it just it's also a reminder that you know that the sometimes the most enjoyable things you know in life are the most simplest things, and just being able to sit there, and listen to the birds, and listen to the wind, and and watch the trees, and watch the plants, and. Um, you know, obviously you're, you're able to do that because you're under the influence of a pretty, you know, powerful psychoactive drug. But, um, yeah, as I said, the, the, the feeling that I got um, was it just the universe is always going to look after me if I look after it. And, you know, that's that's something that I constantly will tell myself or remind myself if I start to experience any sort of those anxious thoughts or start to get a little bit, you know, panicky or worried about you know certain things you know it's just stop take myself back to that day and you know tell myself just look after the universe the universe will look after you and um, what does it look like for you to look after the universe just to be the best human being i can possibly you know be you know so that's you know as i said before first and foremost being the best dad that i can be to my kids being the best husband i can be to my wife being the best brother, being the best brother-in-law, the best son that I can possibly be, um, best mate that I can possibly be, best employee that I can possibly be, the best stranger that I can, you know, possibly be, uh-huh. and, you know, just trying to spread joy and happiness. And you know, it doesn't take much to do that. It's just, you know, a smile at a stranger and, oh, hi, how are you going? Or, you know, striking up a conversation with someone that you buy, uh, you know, when you go to the shop and you buy, you know, whatever it is that you buy and just having a... Um, you know, a brief little conversation and, you know, try and, uh, you know, create a bit of happiness. So um, those that's what, you know, looking after the universe, you know, means to me, you know. Yeah. So does, how, how much has that feeling stuck with you over time? And does yeah, it, it hasn't. No, it hasn't, it hasn't left me. Yeah, I mean, you... you um, the glow of the psychedelic experience wears off, you know, after, you know, however long for every person that's going to be different, but that feeling, you know, what I experienced, you know, that day, I mean, you, you, you read some of the studies, you know, and the, the people talk about, you know, um, psychedelic experience being, you know, easily the top five, you know, one of the most meaningful experiences they've ever had, you know, in their entire lives, you know, and mm. just, just below, you know, the, the giving birth to their, um, to their kids or, you know, being married, um, you know, to their wife. So um, they're really, you know, if you have, you know, a great experience, you know, they're, they're really memorable. Um, so, and, and that's something that, that hasn't left me and I don't think, you know, ever will. Have you ever done DMT? I've, I've smoked DMT um, and I just got uh, some amazing um, uh, fractals and geometric patterns just like, constantly just almost like almost like they're on a conveyor belt in my mind and they were just sort of flooding my vision for like it felt like forever i think it was only about <laughs> 10 minutes um but you know i had um i wanted to go and do ayahuasca it was going to be in 2020 um but unfortunately uh you know covid happened and, and world travel yeah. got kiboshed for, for a number of years but um yeah, so that's pretty high up on my, I guess, my psychedelic bucket list. And my brother-in-law is getting married in 
in Brazil next year. Um, and he's, his wife-to-be is Peruvian, so um, they have some fantastic ayahuasca retreats um, in Peru. And, and um, you know, having some uh, – my sister-in-law's family down there, like they'll be able to point me in the right direction. So that's something I'm definitely going to do, um, oh, cool. you know, next year. And, um, yeah, the guy we were talking about before, Joel Breer at um, Andava Retreats, who works with 5MEO. Um, yeah, I think that's something that's pretty high up on the bucket list too to, to, to go to uh, – down to Mexico yeah. and, and do a week-long retreat, you know, with them. So I think, um, you know, the, the ayahuasca part, you know, the, the, the reason behind that is I think there's still a bit of emotional baggage, you know, with, um, you know, just with everything that I've gone through and, you know, um, over the years, it, it almost feels like I need a bit of a, an emotional um, cleanse or, or an emotional purge and, you know, going into, you know, that with some type of intention, um, as well, I think it's going to be really, uh, you know, beneficial and worthwhile, and uh, you know, good for my mental health. Uh, you know, at the same time as well, and just exploring consciousness as well. I think that's something that you know I never really, um, you know, if, if I heard the word consciousness in my twenties, I just you know, I naturally I just oh, you know, that's just hippie bullshit. But you know, the more that I've read, the more that I've learned, like being able to just explore consciousness you know sort of what else is is out there and you know is there life after death and um you know i think that's why psilocybin's having um you know uh, such a profound impact on people with with terminal illness right because it's showing them that you know um death isn't the last stop you know in the journey that potentially could be you know you know more out there than than what we're experiencing or you know who's who's the say reincarnation isn't a thing and um, you know, so it's just being able to, to explore and just be open-minded, you know, and, um, and again, just that just feeling that connection to nature is just like just so magical and so amazing. And, um, you know, it has that, that in itself has such a profound impact on my wellbeing, um, mm. as well. I think more people should definitely think about consciousness and like what the, to be honest, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, like, you get this, yeah, this, like you get I mean, in your day-to-day life. You get on the bus, you go to work. Someone's like, "Where's this email?" It seems like that is just the focus of your attention. But then, if you mm-hmm. zoom out, we're all in this rock, and we think we understood it with like laws of physics. But I like that's one of my I like to do that every now and then. Read a book about physics, and they, they mm-hmm. talk about the things that don't make sense and people haven't worked out, and there is no theory for. And we yeah. are not in anywhere close to understanding what the fuck is going on. So yeah. exploring that is, is I think it's important. Yeah. And I think, you know, sort of a lot of what psychedelics have, have taught me, you know, as well as, you know, again, exploring consciousness, but, you know, there's more to life than, um, you know, high paying jobs and, and chasing nice cars and nice homes. And, you know, that was something that I certainly learned about in the science of wellbeing courses, you know, our minds perceptions aren't always right. You know, and we, we, you know, we uh, perceive other people who, you know, have the nice house and the nice car and all that type of stuff. And they seem happy, but, you know, underneath the surface, it's not always, you know, as it seems and those material things in their life, they actually don't bring us any, any happiness. You know, they might give us a hint of, a hit of pleasure you know, for a time being, but because of hedonic ad- adaptation, you know, we get used to stuff, um, mm. you know. So and, um, 
So psychedelics in a sense is, you know, it brings me back to the, just the, the simple things, right? You know, just the connection to nature and the connection to people in your life. And those are the, the you know, the, the most meaningful things that have the most meaningful, uh, you know, impacts, you know, uh, on myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, just also just, you know, seeing things in a completely different perspective and a completely different light. Do you think it's helpful as well? Is there any chance that it, Coming back to what I was saying earlier, like there's a bit of a paradox between being in a state of like mental discomfort and then using that to power you forward. So like with psychedelics, lots of people report saying, okay, I understand what makes me happy a bit better now. And often that might be like, I don't need the money. I don't need this. I don't need that. And as someone who's like quite ambitious, I know that I don't need a fast car, but I came from a family where we didn't have much money ever. I'd like to own a house. I'd like to maybe be able to put, take my kids to a good school. There's a few things that aren't necessarily flashy, but you need money to do them. Yeah, and and it's not to say that money's like, you know, evil, you know, or anything like that. I think knowing what money is and what money can provide you versus money making you happy are two totally different things, you know. There's mm. nothing wrong like, you know, with wanting to own a own house to put a roof over your kid's head and, and to build a home, like, you know, you, you build a home for your kids or you build a home for your family and that's somewhere that you want them to come that no matter what's going on in their life or no matter what's going on in their world, that they'll, they, they know that they can always come back in, they'll feel safe and they'll feel loved. You know, there's nothing wrong with aspiring, you know, to those things. But I think where we get, you know, we fall into the trap is, if, you know, that just somehow having money is just going to make us, you know, if, we're, if our baseline is we're unhappy and our expectation is, you know, by getting the fast car or getting the, you know, the nice house or new clothes or, you know, the material things that somehow are almost going to be this, you know, instantly different, happy person. <laughs> you're you're yeah. sad, sadly mistaken. And I think that's where, um, you know, that's sort of the, the point of difference, right? It's, it's, it's the mindset and your expectation. Yeah. Um, interesting. You know, and I think we've, we've just been, we've almost been brainwashed in a sense to, to believe that that's, you know, the case and that's done through advertising. It's done through sort of social media. Um, as well, you know, anytime you see someone on the TV driving a, you know, a brand new Mercedes, he always looks happy, never looks sad. Yeah, you know, does he? And you know, it's, um, uh, you know, you know, I sort of spotted that trend line throughout your when I was doing some research about you. Like everything you did, it looks like, as you're saying earlier, you just went full, like full speed at it. And in your sporting career, you had a lot of injuries, mentally off the field. You had stuff that you struggled with what was your reason for wanting to win at these things and do you think because you were trying so hard to get there that it made you actually take longer in the long run like because in this day and age everyone sees on social media the outcome of having money there's everyone like it's right there but and it makes you want to do that now do you think how fast you get there is important oh look i was probably just a, a very impatient person you know, as a kid, I wanted everything done, you know, <laughs> yesterday, you know, right? So I just, you know, it was, uh, you know, mindset of just take no prisoners and get it done, you know, as quickly as possible. Um, again, because, you know, if I succeeded at something or if I won something or if I, you know, uh, achieved something quicker than, than someone else, and that was almost like, you know, again, a, a validation of myself as a person and a validation, you know, of my self-worth. You know, I had a, a, an extremely warped view on what failure was. You know, I thought failure was like an absolute 
you know, black mark or a stain, you know, on your name and somehow summed you up as a person. It's just, you know, again, that all or nothing, that black and white, oh, you failed, so that means you're a failure as a person. But, you know, and I look back on all the times I've failed as a, as a human being, if it's a footballer or as a father or as a, you know, a husband, like those have been like the greatest learning experiences, you know, for me as well. And you learn so much more from losing and so much more from failure than you ever will from, from succeeding um, or winning. And it's, you know, it's about, you know, uh, taking the right mindset and approach to how you look at your failures and, and, and what you actually learn from them and what, can, what it can do to actually help shape, you know, your next crack, you know, at something. Yeah. There are so many, like, you, know, you could, you know, rattle off thousands of examples of, you know, successful business people who, were, like, had multiple failures, you know, um, you know, prior to that. One of my dad's good mates, like, he was bankrupt three times before he, you know, sold his business, you know, 10 or 15 years ago for like 60 or 70 million bucks. Um, mm. And, you know, he's open and adamant and saying, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have sold my business, you know, for that much if I hadn't have gone through those three bankruptcies, you know. Yeah. And I guess, you know, early on, I, if, I, I didn't, if I didn't think I was going to succeed at something, I probably wouldn't have done it because that's how scared of failure I was and that's mm. how warped my view of failure um, was where now I don't care if I'm going to fail at something, you know, so be it. It's, a, it's another yeah. opportunity to learn, you know, yeah. and grow and it's about, you know, just saying, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to have a crack, you know, what's the worst thing yeah. that can happen? I'll be in no worse position than I am than I was before I, when I started something. Exactly, I'll be in a better position because I would have learned, you know, something. So, um that's probably it, been one of the, the biggest shifts in my mindset over the years is, you know, uh, learning just how to approach um, failure, you know, in a yeah. completely different mindset. If you expand your time horizons far enough, failure just gets insignificant. Like if I said start an electric car company called Tesla tomorrow and finish it in a year, it'd be like, yeah. impossible. If I told you to do yeah. that for the rest of your life, you'd be like, hmm, probably you could do that. Yeah. So, yeah. What did you learn from doing burnouts at the training ground in <laughs> Melbourne? Uh, uh, don't do it while the um, while the groundskeeper's there because I got banned from ever parking that car. Wait, park. so what happened? Again. Oh, so I, look, a bit of a rev head when I was younger and I just got a, a new contract and being, you know, young and dumb and, you know, I just thought, oh, I'll go out and, you know, blow it. 90 grand on a and hotted up ute and I brought into training one day and one of, as I was leaving one of the boys you know did the the burnout so I was like oh mate bag it up so I just uh, I just absolutely ripped like this massive burnout I would have gone for like 40 or 50 meters and there was smoke everywhere there was burning <laughs> rubber everywhere and, and all the boys were going nuts and then um, I got a phone call on the way because I just finished the training that morning I was going back to the club to do some weights and I got a phone call from uh, the footy manager. He's like, mate, the, uh, the groundskeeper's fucking really pissed off. I think you need to come back here and apologise. I was like, oh, fucking hell. So anyway, I turned around and drew, drew her back there and, you know, didn't want to borrow me. He's like, no, nah, you're never parking here again. So from then on, every time we trained out at that ground, I had to park at the front gates and then the, the driveway was about sort of 500 metres in, you know, to the ground. So I could walk. Uh, so... Yeah, another, uh, yeah, just a, you know, stupid young kid who, you know, thought he knew everything and was, uh, you know, 
Uh, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't the worst thing someone could have done, but, you know, just probably a little bit immature and irresponsible. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, I know it's getting late for you, so we're not going to go on for much longer, but I did want to ask a bit about um, what made the best players that you played with so good, and, and, like people like Chris Judd. What was he, what were like the traits? Did he drink on the weekends or was he like completely sober the whole time or like? Look, he, he, he was someone who was born with like an absolute like unbelievable, unbelievable ability. Like one of the most explosive and damaging players that I've ever seen in the games ever seen. Um, look, he wasn't, he wasn't a big drinker by any stretch of imagination, but you know, he knew because of what he experienced, you know, with his body, he had sort of pretty bad shoulders and by the time he finished up a cold, he had, you know, sort of bad groins and um but he knew um when to train hard like he was very very smart with his training and he took ownership over his program like he didn't come in to say well no I'm not just not going to do what everyone does you know because that's not what might be best for me and this is one thing he always used to teach the young kids when they come in is like you know learn how learn learn about your body learn what it responds to the most learn what it doesn't respond to the most learn what how how you get the best out of his stuff. And he was yeah, just like absolutely, ab- he was just absolutely amazing um, at that. And, you know, the the effort he would go to in getting his body right from a, you know, a, a treatment perspective, from Pilates, from yoga, uh, by not doing certain types of, of weights. You know, I, if you walked into a gym, I reckon nearly 90% of blokes, the first thing they'd go and do would be bench press. Yeah. You know, he didn't give a shit about bench press. You know, he would be doing sort of, deadlifts and stuff that made his legs and his core and his hips like really strong and when you saw him play like it was no coincidence that hardly anyone could ever you know tackle him or why he used to break through so many tackles or why he could be just so explosive you know out of a pack and um yeah so certainly his attention you know to detail um and just the you know his ability to know when to train hard and know when to, to, to take it a bit easy but you know, the, the time and the effort that he put into getting his body right. Mm. Um, yeah, Is there anything specifically that you know about your body now that, like, you think, for example, bench press, most of my friends go to the gym and everyone's doing this, like, hypertrophy, like, bodybuilding thing, but yeah. I'm, I'm getting to the point, I'm like, this is definitely not, this is definitely not what I want to do. Like, A, I don't want to yeah. look like that. B, I want to be, like, functional and injury-free and stuff like that. So what are some things you would recommend? Oh... I mean, again, everyone's everyone's different. You know, that's that's probably the biggest thing to take home and just actually learn what works for you. And you know, for me, I'm not massively into weights. I think you can get strong, you know, just by doing other sort of you know natural things like boxing or swimming or uh, yoga or Pilates or just doing your own body weight stuff like dips and push ups and and, and chin ups and um, and those types of things. But um, yeah, you know, I mean, learn learn what works for you. That's probably the the, the take home message, right? Because you know, and you want exercise to be fun. Like, yeah. you don't want exercise to be a chore. Like, you want to try and stay healthy. You want to try and stay reasonably fit. You don't have to take things to too extreme. But I mean, we only have so much time, you know, on this earth. Why would you want to spend ten hours a week at the gym doing things that you absolutely hate doing just to stay mm. fit? Do you know what I mean? Like do something yeah, yeah. that we actually, you know, it's like, oh, yes, I'm going I'm to go for a run because one, I enjoy it. Two, it's good for my head. And three, I'm out of the office or I'm out of the house or I'm, 
You know, I've got half an hour of peace and quiet, you know, to myself or, you know, jump on the bike or go for a swim or, you know, do it, you know, do what works for you. But, you know, do it at the end of the day, do it, uh, do what you enjoy as well, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. You want to try and enjoy everything that you do in life. And I know that's impossible, but as much as you can anyway. Are you a runner? Do you run? Still yeah, yeah, I love running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just oh, really? love running. I just, yeah, just. You know. I'll have to give you a follow on Strava. Have you got Strava? Yeah. But no, I wouldn't have a clue what Strava is, mate. I'm, I'm oh, very really? old school when it very old school when it comes to running, mate. I just put Wait. my music in and just, 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 off I, just off I go, mate. Yeah, just you know, tick you know my legs far, over, pump out the Ks. Oh look, I'm 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 not doing too many Ks at the moment because I'm still I'm still playing a bit of local footy, just just for okay. some mates. Um but you know, I'd, I'd, if I or wasn't doing that, you know, I'd love to just go for a sort of a ten K run, you know, just uh yeah, nice. just cruise into it and you know mm. um somewhere ideally with nice surroundings but you know if it means just running around the streets and then so be it but yeah. yeah running's running's really good for my headspace you know it's and i i enjoy it like i enjoy that way of, of keeping fit yeah i think it's so good yeah i agree it's really good for i find it really good for my mental well-being so you do still play a little bit yeah yeah so i'm playing yeah so uh playing up in the country um, with a couple of mates, I re- retired at the end of last year, but uh, somehow they twisted my arm back into <laughs> to playing a few games um, with nice. with them this year. So look, footy's still it's still fun. Um, the, it's it's more about again that social connection. The footy club that I play, it's a really great footy club, and you go up there and everyone's so you know lovely, so kind. Um, you know, they're a small little country town that just really band together and get behind you know, their footy club. And um, so it was, uh, yeah, I was, I was you know, sort of happy that they twisted my arm because I had, had round one last week. And, you know, by the time I got up there, I was like, yeah, I'm sort of happy happy to be mm-hmm. back because, you know, those those are one of those things that contributes to my, you know, my well-being as well. You go out there, you have a bit of fun, you get a bit of exercise, but, you know, you, you build, a, build a connection, you know, you build a, a bond, you know, with these guys. And it's a huge part of, you know, again, my well-being and, and happiness is having these really strong social connections, you know, to friends and, and to people. Yeah, that's really cool. It's cool that you found that. Um, I, I actually, for the first time ever, tried out AFL for like a month oh, did you? For one of the local <laughs> how'd London you, teams. How'd you go? That was all right. I, I accidentally mentioned that my, my granddad play, played for Carlton. Um, yeah. I don't think I lived up to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put... You put yourself under pressure there, mate. Yeah. It's like, oh, this yeah. guy will be able to play, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a pro player, so you can get away with it. I should not have said yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just say nothing and slide under the radar. You look, yeah. I mean, so it's, if- it's, it's such a like, I mean, for anyone who hasn't grown up with the sport, like if you went and watched the game, you know, at least with, you know, if you watch soccer, you never watched soccer before, you'd be able to pick up on the rules pretty quickly, right? Like you have to kick it, you can't touch it with your hand, you've got to get in the goals. You look at AFL and be like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's just kamikaze. None of the rules seem to make sense. There's fucking guys running from, from everywhere. and <laughs> uh, But, you know, once you understand the game and you know the rules, it's actually just such a fun game to watch and it's a really fun game to play and it's so unique in itself that, you know, when someone asks you, like, you know, what's it like? You're like it's like a combination of rugby, soccer, you know, NFL. Yeah, um, yeah. About four sports sort of rolled into one. Yeah. What has been your best moment then? It doesn't have to be a personal one, but like, or what's the best thing you've seen? Like someone take a mark that's like on someone, like a specky. Like what's the, is there anything that stands out? Uh, 
like from a personal perspective, yeah, um, that final that I spoke about, you know, that was yeah. just, um, you know, as I said, you want to play one AFL game, but we, you play footy, you play to play in finals and you play to win win a premiership. And, you know, unfortunately I never got to play in a, a winning premiership, but, you know, I got to play in a winning final and, you know, there was a huge amount of pride in, in the team success of that night, but there was a huge amount of pride in, in my performance um, as well because the previous two years I played in the finals in my first year and second year and we lost both games and I played like really bad, you know, in both those games, which was not something that was, you know, quite um, usual for me. I always played well um, in big games and I always prided myself on that. So that was like like a huge sense of, of relief as well, but a huge sense of, you know what, I knew I could play like that. It was just about showing the rest of the world, you know, whoever Wait, was watching how, that game. How did you How did you play well in big games? Because most people are quite oh, upset. Yeah, no, it was just something that, you know, um, I want to say came natural to, but, you know, I just, I loved playing in those big games. I loved those pressure moments. I loved, you know, this the spotlight, um, in terms of on the footy field. And, you mm. know, um, that was how my name really got catapulted up into the, when I got drafted, because when I started that year, I was, I probably wasn't expecting to get drafted. And, you know, I had a really good carnival. I was all Australian. And then the finals, I was the best player in the finals for our team by, you know, by a mile. And then I got best on, you know, best on ground in, in the grand final. So I think, you know, uh, that really catapulted my name up the, the up the board because you know it was uh, you want players who can stand up in those big pressure moments and I think you know that's what a lot of players pride themselves on is you know not being able to get you know thirty kicks when you're playing against the bottom team it's when you're playing against the top team or you're playing in the big mm-hmm. games like that's almost like a big you know tick of approval for someone's ability to be able to stand up in those big moments. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's also gives people a lot of hope in terms of you don't have to be the most talented in whatever domain you're in. If there's one piece that you are the best at, that can be vital for like getting to the next level of whatever you're doing. Yeah. So it's just finding yeah. what your what your piece is. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, exactly right. And just you know, play, yeah, playing two strengths. What are your plans for the like prioritizing being good dads? Keep exploring psychedelics, see what happens, open-minded, and what what are your plans for? Oh, look, Steph, Steph and I, like, I've I've lived in Melbourne all my life, you know, and I'm, I, you know, before I had kids, I had the travel bug massively, you know, when our season, in between when our season would finish and when we'd start up and back, back up again, I'd usually be traveling, you know, somewhere, I'd just pack my bag and, you know, I'd book my, if I was going to Europe, I'd just book my flights to the UK uh, to London and then everything else I make up you know, in between. So okay. I'm really hanging to live somewhere else, you know, for a good, at least for a good year or two. And um, Steph's is, uh, my wife's Canadian. So, you know, she was born there, spent the first six or seven years of her life there. Her dad's Canadian. So she's still got a lot of family over there. So one day we'd love to, mm. love to move there, um, you know. It'd be good to be in the same time as a lot of these American psychedelic companies do. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of companies over there in, in, in sort of Canada. So I feel like that could be, you know, a really sort of transferable uh, skill for me. No family's quite well connected um, over there as well. So that's something that, you know, we've, we've spoken about, you know, we, we could live anywhere really. Like, you know, we're, we're both um, uh, people who can just settle into sort of any environment. So um, 
I think, uh, you know, ideally we'd love to do it when the girls are, are a bit younger. Um, yeah. And, but the, the most ideal thing is that they're really close together in age, only 19 months apart. So, you know, if we did, you know, move somewhere, at least they'd have a constant, you know, friend in their life, which should be um, their really sister. Sweet. So, yeah, definitely being, you know, doing a bit of travel and ideally moving to another city and living there for at least a year or two would be, um, you know, pretty high up on the list. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, hopefully next time we chat, then maybe you'll be yeah, who knows where. Yeah. Okay. So, so, mate. <laughs> to end, I do like three, two, one. To be honest, I might find something else. I don't like it, but I keep doing it now. I feel like it's just yeah. going to be a habit and it's going to happen. <laughs> um, so three, I want to ask, what are three things to explore if someone's thinking about their happiness or well-being? So yeah, so... Social connection. Yeah, look, I highly recommend doing that Science of Wellbeing course, uh, Yale University. Like it was really, um, it was a real, so informative. And I learned so much from that at a time where I probably, you know, needed a bit of reaffirmation of all of those things, you know, because of how challenging COVID was. Um, so that was uh, something. But one of the first things that my psychiatrist, ever said to me when I got into the Melbourne clinic, which is a psychiatric clinic that I stayed in, he was like, I want you to get a piece of paper and a pen and I want to, I want you to write down 10 things that you're at your most happiest when you're doing, you know, so right, right, hanging with family, you know, hanging with family, uh, in nature, going for a swim at the beach, taking my dog for a walk, all of these things. And he's right. those are your 10 natural antidepressants. So whenever you're feeling depressed or wherever you're feeling lonely, forget a tablet, get anything like that go and do one of these things you know because that's you instantly get um you know a hit of happiness by doing those things because you're at your most happiness uh you know when you're doing it so certainly that the science of well-being i highly recommend doing that course writing down 10 things that you're uh, most happiest um when you're doing and uh so just a holistic approach you know to everything there's no you know um you know, no cure or one, you know, taking a tablet's just not going to cure anything. It's, you know, uh, eating well, sleeping well. Um, I find reading's good for me. Um, I find journaling or, you know, writing down three things that I did well um, or that I'm grateful for at the end of, of every day certainly has an effect um, on my mindset as well. And just, you know, I think, you know, alcohol, you know, is such a big part of, you know, society and it's a big part of you know socializing so i would never ever say to anyone you shouldn't drink or you shouldn't do this but knowing when to have a drink and when not to have a drink i think those are really really important things to understand because alcohol is a psychoactive depressant so if you are depressed if you are feeling sad if you are feeling like shit drinking is only going to make things worse but you know for a long time i didn't didn't do that i did the opposite i drank more when i was depressed and it just made things worse so um, you know, understanding, you know, the impact that those things can have on our well-being as well can yeah. make, a, make a really big difference to us. So are you still not drinking or do you... No, I, look, I'm, I'm at a point now where, you know, again, I was, as I said, I was all or nothing. So I couldn't have one beer. It was either, you know, 400 yeah. or nothing. So but I'm at a point now where I can have a glass of red wine, you know, with dinner or with my life and I'll yeah. leave it at that. I can have a couple of beers. You know, I, I, I don't really drink during the week. I very rarely drink you know during the week um you know if, if i'm playing footy on a weekend i'll have a couple of beers with the boys 
you know, after the game? Is it just a, a, a social thing? But yeah, I can can sort of take alcohol. I can take it or leave it. You know, if I, you know, if I'm if I have a drink, it's usually to be social. Yeah, that's cool. Because it's, it's such a, it's like, I don't know whether to you don't know whether to live and drink or, well, I suppose there's already an issue there. Like living and drinking on they're not attached. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a society thing. Yeah, but yeah. I definitely would like to talk more about that because yeah, there's a good mate. If you if you're interested in reading, um, there's a really yeah. Good I was going to ask I, what books are there for that I read. It's called This Naked Mind. It's written by I think her name's Annie Grace. She's this marketing ex, marketing executive who had a really troubling relationship with alcohol. She got sober and then she wrote a book about a lot of the facts um, about alcohol. Okay. And I started reading that when I well, I gave up the booze for you know, for a good year or two, um, you know, when I was getting better just to get myself, you know, away from it and to, to learn about it and get myself in a position where I could have a better relationship, you know, with alcohol. And that was, it was just a really, really good read and so informative and um, just gave you so many different tools and resources and information, um, you know, to make better, uh, smart and informed decisions about, you know, drinking. Yeah, awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy that after this and give that a read. Um, and then... Yeah, I'll add all the links to this in the show notes. Okay, two, two, two areas within the psychedelic world where people might want to do some research. Like what, what's exciting? And if someone wanted to break into psychedelics, where, where, where do you think they should be looking? Uh, I mean, the, the, I think some of these new chemical entities that they're proposing, you know, at the moment are going to be quite mind-blowing if they're as effective as you know the, the the molecules that have been here since you know sort of time began like psilocybin and 5-MeO-DMT and, and DMT and uh, mescaline and you know and these types of, of molecules but you know uh, where sort of the market is heading and you know how you can how it becomes more easier and effective to raise money is you, you have to develop your own drugs and you know tweaking all the uh, I guess the unwanted side effects out of some of these, you know, molecules to help make them, um, I guess, safer, but also more scalable um, um, and potentially um, more effective. You know, so what the guys at Mind State Design Labs, yeah, are I'm doing. speaking to Dylan, speaking to Dylan next week actually. So yeah, I'll, I'll ask him. Yeah, about that. he, I, mate, I listened to him and. And Tom on one of the business trips podcasts, and I was absolutely just blown away by you know some of the stuff that they were talking about, and you know um, what Gilgamesh, um, oh yeah, are doing. Uh, who else is there? Uh, there's Silo really in just, Australia. Yeah, so, doing... yeah, Silo. So they're they're doing they're using um, they're using all the AI stuff for, for I guess for drug discovery. Oh. I think which is going to be I think that's them anyway. There's got to be a really interesting area. Um, that you know, I don't know a hell of a lot um, about. But um, if I if I if you were to say go and if there were two companies that you would go and you know check out in the in the psychedelic world that are that are doing some exciting things, I would definitely say um, uh, Mind State um, Design Labs. I think that's certainly yeah. one. Who would be the other? Uh, I think um, Dalek, because what they're proposing is um, a lot of uh, they're called psychoplastogens, which is basically psychedelics without the trip, um, you know, without mm. the trip attached to it. So no hallucinations, which 
I don't think will work for mental health conditions like depression and PTSD and, and anxiety and eating disorders, a lot of those things, because I, I think the trip is really paramount and probably the crucial part, um, you know, to uh, the therapeutic effect on those drugs but for things, you know, potentially like Parkinson's or central nervous system disorders and um, Alzheimer's and um, uh, I think the, uh, there's a company investigating them for strokes as well. So potentially there's a lot of um, uh, yeah, potential uh, there, with treatments like that. So, yeah, those would be two I'd, I'd, I'd say go and check out. Oh, awesome. And last one, what's one book or podcast or article or film that you would say, yeah, watch this or read this? Uh, I'm going to leave it open, like whatever outcome. Entertainment, yeah. informant information. Um, look, the two books. Um, I, I look. I couldn't separate these two books. They probably had the biggest, um, you know, sort of wow factor. One was called. Uh, it's called LSD: Doorways to the Numinous. It's by Stanislav Grof, who's probably the grandfather of LSD therapy. Um, and for me, that was just an absolutely mind-blowing book. But just about some of his his research on LSD therapy and and some of the experiences that his patients had, and you know the, the treatments and the experiences that they went through under LSD therapy, it was just like um, absolutely mind-blowing. Um, so if you're into psychedelics, highly recommend that one. And then the other one of the mine uh, the title has just escaped me but uh it's called a general theory of love and it talks about i guess love and emotions from from a scientific viewpoint um but the take-home message from me for that was you know I, i read that when we were expecting our first and that the most important thing in a child's life and a child's upbringing is love it doesn't matter you know what type of home that they like in terms of, you know, from a, an aesthetic point of view or a material point of view, it doesn't matter what type of home, it doesn't mm-hmm. how much money you've got, all a child needs is just like so much love, just love, like just give them love, 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 you know. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, that was just a really reassuring thing for me, you know, when I was reading that, ex- expecting because, you know, as any first-time parent knows, like, fuck, what have I got myself into? Like, yeah. know, kill a baby. You know, <laughs> so many questions running through your head. How am I going to yeah. get through this? How, am I, how do I give them the best chance of life? All these types of things. And I read that and I was just like, that's great because I've just got so much love to give and, you know, especially for your own child. So, um, yeah, I know it's I know it was uh, one book, but, yeah, I couldn't separate those two. Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. That's some great resources for people that uh, look a bit further then. All right, well, thank you, Brock. Thank you for taking the time. That was a sick conversation and I look forward to our next one because I feel like, yeah, as I say, there's there's way more to ask you than would fit into a Monday evening. <laughs> yeah. Happy to chat, mate. Yeah, it's uh, something I enjoy doing and yeah, it's, um, you know, it's good to speak to you again, mate. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, awesome. No worries. All right. Thank you very much.